From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Standardized test scores are in. Did Colorado students get a passing grade? We'll take a closer look at how many children are learning at grade level following the big gaps in education prompted by the pandemic. Then, a Colorado man is on a mission to help firefighters battling the historic wildfires on Maui, who've also lost their homes. They deserve a nice place to sleep at night and to be able to take a shower and eat a home-cooked meal. And finally, there are only eight species of bears left in the world, and climate change is just partially to blame. We are seeing that bears are staying up for longer. Bears, you know, go into hibernation when there's not much food available and when it's cold and so they kind of bunker down. And so we are starting to see changes in places like Colorado and places like Lake Tahoe. We'll tell you about a new book that chronicles their uncertain future. Your car used to take you places, but it can't anymore. If you donate it to CPR, it can take you places again. Down the road to new ideas, new discoveries, and through your donation, hundreds of thousands of other people will be able to come along for the ride. Because your donation funds the radio you rely on. Get started on the safe and simple car donation process at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The damage the pandemic inflicted on children in Colorado was deep, and it will take a long time to dig out. That's the takeaway based on the latest round of standardized test scores for students. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has been looking through the results. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Chandra. The standardized test scores known as the Colorado Measures of Academic Success, or CMAS, show some improvement over the last year, but learning deficits continue. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, many students still aren't at the academic levels they were before the pandemic. That's according to these newly released results. Most of the data across grades was a mixed bag, though officials said last school year had far fewer disruptions. They also had more unfilled positions, and some students and educators are still experiencing social and personal challenges. Hmm. So this is the second year since the pandemic that Colorado students took a typical set of standardized tests because tests were canceled in 2020 and modified in 2021. What were students tested on? Third through eighth graders took the tests in English and math, while fifth, eighth and 11th graders took the science tests. Let's talk about that first group, the third through eighth graders. What's the big takeaway for them? Overall, English scores bumped up very slightly over last year with almost 43% of children reading and writing on grade level, but it still hasn't reached the pre-pandemic level of nearly 46%. About half the grades dropped in scores from last year and about half increased. But in math, all grades improved over last year. That was kind of a big surprise. Officials describe it as a stair-step improvement since the pandemic ended. Third through fifth graders almost matched or performed better than 2019. That was the last test before the pandemic. Just under 33% met or exceeded expectations in math. And the state adopted new standards for science three years ago. What do the test scores suggest about that? Only three grades take this science test. So about one in three students is where they should be. 
in grades five and eight, but science knowledge drops by 11th grade where one in four is on target. But, and this is a big but, fewer than half of 11th graders actually took the science tests. So that means generalized results for the whole grade are really hard to pin down. And the test scores also suggest a difference between how quickly boys and girls are recovering academically. Boys gained ground on girls in almost every grade in reading and writing and math. It was really interesting. Uh, Girls still are scoring higher in reading and writing in every grade level, but the gap narrowed with boys starting to recover from the pandemic faster. And in science, boys perform more strongly than girls in fifth grade, but that gap almost disappears by eighth grade. Colorado's education commissioner told reporters that national research shows girls struggled more during the pandemic with anxiety and depression, but why that might cause them to slow down academically is not yet clear. And also pervasive achievement gaps between races and income levels also remain. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for decades, the state has seen significant achievement gaps between students based on race and ethnicity, disability, family income levels, and English speaking ability. Gaps range from 20 to 46 points. Asian students outperform white students on 11 of the 12 tests. The white-black achievement gap ran between 24 and 31 points, depending on the subject. And the white-Hispanic gap was about the same as that. I should say these test scores often align with poverty rates. When you look at the gap between students who qualify for federal free and reduced price lunch and their wealthier peers, the gaps are even higher. Hmm. What about by districts? Along the front range, reading, writing, and math scores ran the gamut from just 9% on grade level to 60% in some school districts. So Colorado's Education Commissioner talked with reporters about the scores, and she told you she's actually optimistic overall about the test scores. Yes, uh, Susana Cordova is Colorado's Education Commissioner. She told us at the state level, we're starting to see small increases in performance. She says it's a reflection of how hard people are working, as well as how difficult it's going to be to regain momentum given pandemic disruptions. Cordova said educators, parents, and students' dedication in recovering academic skills lost during the pandemic is, quote, nothing short of inspiring. But she also acknowledged that there are large gaps between student groups that must be addressed. So what's the bottom line? What does this all mean? What these scores are supposed to do is provide a roadmap for schools and districts on where to focus. The state will continue supporting all of Colorado's teachers who were required to take training in what's called evidence-based reading instruction. This year, all kindergarten through third grade administrators and principals must also take that training. Uh, Another thing, the legislature put a lot of money into a grant program for free academic enrichment in math, especially for students who are below grade level. Educators in core content areas who must have their license renewed by 2025 or later, they also must take 45 hours of training in teaching English language learners. And finally, the state will keep distributing around six and a half million dollars in federal money for what's called high impact tutoring, um, after school programming and high quality math curriculum. A lot to unpack there, Jenny. Thanks for breaking this down for us. You're welcome. Jenny Brundine is CPR's education reporter. Read her reporting along with charts that show the test scores at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
The town of Iola disappeared to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. I have played and swam in Blue Mesa, and I've always been haunted that there are towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa. Shelley Reed sets her new novel in Iola. Read Go As A River with us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Then join us September 13th in Grand Junction. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page. With support from Elevation Press of Colorado. Some special cargo is scheduled to leave the port of San Diego this morning from Maui. Colorado nonprofit EmergencyRV.org is shipping five recreational vehicles to the island. They'll service temporary housing for firefighters left homeless by fires there, including the one that leveled the historic town of Lahaina. Woody Faircloth of Denver first launched the organization after fires in Northern California five years ago. He spoke with my colleague Michelle Fulcher Friday before he drove one of the RVs to San Diego. Tell me who these RVs are destined for. These RVs are going to some of the 18 firefighter families who lost their own homes while fighting the fires in in, uh, Hawaii. Um, A lot of these firefighters are still on the job, sleeping in their fire truck, and we just think they deserve a nice place to to sleep at night and to be able to take a shower and eat a a home-cooked meal. So how many RVs have you collected so far? We've collected eight so far, and that's after, you know, on Monday... I was talking to my daughter about, hey, I wish we could help these people in Maui, but there's no way to get RVs there. It's really difficult. And then we looked into possibly shipping them. And then uh, um, an organization we've worked with in California, the California Fire Foundation, who have, have introduced us to firefighters who've lost homes and some of the big fires out there, said, hey, we'll help you get the RVs there on a ship. And so you just have to get them to San Diego. And um, now we have eight. We have five that we're going to put on the ship, and they'll go over and we're going to do another shipment um, a week from now to to try to help these families. Where have these RVs come from in such a short period of time? You know, that's a great question. I think it really boils down to the fact that when disasters like this happen, people want to help. They just often don't know how to help. We kind of stumbled on this, you know, this perfect transitional emergency housing solution in the form of RVs back in 2018 with the campfire. And we've been helping following natural disasters ever since. And so we just put the word out and, you know, there are RVs everywhere. A lot of them are not used. Most of them are not used. They're just kind of sitting there. And when an RV owner realizes that we can give them a, the full appraise value as a tax deduction and, and it can go to such a great use like this, it's just a no brainer and everybody wins. And so we just put the word out and actually four of these came from either retired or current firefighters um, in California. And so they just said, Hey, those are my brothers and sisters that have lost their homes and we want to help them. And so they're donating these RVs outright. And we actually had one here in Colorado that we've been doing some work on that we're going to hit the road today and drive it out to San Diego and get it on the ship as well. What are the logistics behind this? I mean, just for starters, how do you get five births on a ship? You know, the logistics are, I don't know. I've just learned that miracles kind of happen in this work. And I didn't even know we could ship them to Hawaii at the beginning of the week, but we were able to find space and actually the space was donated to us on the ship. So it won't cost us anything to get them there. Um, And so it's just, it's miracles really. I don't know how else to put it. Have you been in touch with any of the firefighters who are going to get these RVs? We actually have calls with them today, but they're, they're busy. These fires are still active. 
So they're out on the fire lines, but um, we do have a call set up for later today to talk to some of them. So what have you heard, I guess it would have been indirectly, about what their experience is like there? It's horrifying. I mean, their their entire community burned to the ground. More than 2,000 structures were destroyed. 86% of those were single-family homes. So I think it's some 1,900 residential units, if you will. And it's just awful. I mean, the, the, you know, these guys don't make a ton of money. A lot of them choose this line of work just out of a, a service um, intention on their part. I mean, they're, they're real heroes. They're always out there putting themselves on the line for the rest of us. You know, people are fleeing the fire and they're driving into it. I mean, it's just, it's really sad when this happens and, you know, as, as talented and as much equipment as they have, when a fire like that breaks out and the wind's blowing 80 miles an hour, there's nothing you can do. I mean, we saw that here in the Marshall fire. We've seen that in other fires in California that we've worked. I mean, it's just really sad. And, you know, the, the unfortunate reality is, you know, FEMA and the Red Cross swoop in and, and they do great work, but it'll take FEMA a full year to get housing units there. And that's just too long to wait for people that, that, that don't have the choice of of kind of going and staying with family off the island or, or elsewhere. I mean, these folks are still working every day and, you know, not to have a place to have to go home to, especially when they have families is just it's something that we just don't think should happen. And that's that's why we're so passionate about helping these folks. Thinking back on your experience over these years, have you talked to firefighters who've been in a similar position? In other words, lost their homes, trying to work the same time? Absolutely. And, you know, the really interesting thing about first responders in general is they're the last to ask for help, you know, and the, and the very first ones to help. And that's one of the reasons we like to help them because, you know, they're, they're not going to ask for help. They're, they're just going to keep working and, and do what they have to do. But, you know, giving them a place to lay down at the end of the day and, and have a warm meal and take a shower is just invaluable, we think. So talking about logistics, it doesn't seem like the most efficient way to get housing to folks, to have to put an RV on a boat, get it over there, get it set up. Why this approach? Well, the first thing we did is, is like we do anytime a disaster like this strikes, is, is we kind of looked to see if we could source this type of transitional housing locally. Um, unfortunately, there are no, I, I found two RVs on the entire island of, of Maui and, you know, they were, they were for rent and they were already gone. Um, they do have like camper vans and the like, but not something that would provide, you know, a real kind of home experience for someone. And so, yes, it's inefficient, but if we're able to do it and, and we're going to do it, you know, it's just, there are not a lot of options. And the thought of these folks being intense for nine months to a year is just, that shouldn't happen. And that kind of, you know, it brings home the inefficiency of shipping RVs over there. All of a sudden, it makes sense to get them over there as soon as we can. It really takes FEMA that long to get housing. I mean, what are these people going to do in the interim? Surely they're not going to be camping out, you know. You know, what, what we've seen in situations like this is, you know, Airbnb will they have a program where they'll offer up temporary housing. There's there's a couple on Facebook, kind of adopt a family where where people who own property on the island will make it available to some of these survivors. But you know, fatigue will kick in and and that stuff will kind of dry up that kind of charity because you know these are other people's homes and they use them for rental income and and you know there's all kinds of complexities there. And so 
having a place of your own is just invaluable and something that's longer term. Again, I'm, FEMA does great work. They're an amazing organization. I just think they're inefficient when it comes to getting housing there you know, in an affordable way. And the other thing that happens is when they do provide a, they call them a temporary housing unit, 18 months after they provide it, they take it back, which creates a whole new set of problems. When we donate these, we gift them to the firefighters and they can keep it for as long as they need it. And what we found is probably 80% of the people that we provide with this kind of shelter, they end up paying it forward and and donating it to someone else who needs it um, going forward. So it's a really, it's a beautiful thing. I'm thinking that having this happen on an island, even one that's populated and has obviously fairly sophisticated services, adds to the logistical burden and the the ability to help these people quickly. Absolutely. And there, you know, there's some desperate situations in the early days, even here on the mainland after a disaster like this. And so that's even more acute there. You know, culturally, those islands are very loving, welcoming, and 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 they're really kind of rising up and, and taking care of each other. But there's only so much you can do when it comes to shelter. And that's probably the most basic human need after food and water. And so that's why we focus on it. And we try to get it there as soon as possible, again, because these these folks are still working these fires and they need a place to lay down at night and don't have one currently. So are you driving out there in the RV that came from Colorado? Yes. It's a 17-hour one-way drive, and we're going to get it on that ship, and then we'll turn around and come back. My daughter, Luna, she'll be joining me on this trip, and she's been right there from the very beginning. I mean, we were watching what was happening with the the campfire that, that destroyed the town of Paradise, California. And we saw a story about a guy who barely escaped the fire in his motorhome, drove away from his house. His house burned down. His neighbor's house is burned down. A number of his neighbors died in that fire. It was just horrifying. And there were probably 50,000 people displaced two weeks before Thanksgiving. And he just made a comment to a reporter how grateful he was to have a place to call home for Thanksgiving in the form of that RV. And um, I turned to Luna and said, Luna, why don't we get an RV and we'll drive it to California. We'll give it to a family so they have a home for Thanksgiving. And she just got the biggest smile on her face. She said, Dad, God and Santa Claus are going to be so proud of us. So you know, that was, I knew we had to do it then because she invoked those two higher powers. So she's still, she's still all about it. And just, she's seen a lot of things for a kid from fires and tornadoes and hurricane, you know, kind of aftermath. And, but she, um, she knows how meaningful this work is. She inspires me to continue to do it. And she's, uh, she's a real motivating factor for me. How old is your daughter? She just turned 11. What other natural disasters have you responded to? Mostly wildfires, including East Troublesome here in Colorado, as well as the the fires up in Windsor. Um, Multiple fires in California since 2018. We went about an hour and a half south of New Orleans and and helped a Native American tribe who'd lost 60 homes in Hurricane Ida. We went to Kentucky last December, helped some firefighters and a nurse who lost their homes in those those huge tornadoes that just destroyed town after town. I mean, it's just um, when we helped, we helped a couple out in Kansas who who lost their home in a prairie fire, which I, I wasn't even aware of prairie fires until that happened. But it's just, you know, this, this stuff seems to be happening with more and more frequency. And it's, it's really, 
it can happen anywhere. You know, if it can happen in, in Maui, a fire like that, you know, this can happen absolutely anywhere as we've seen here in Colorado as well. So go back for me to the Paradise Fire or one of the other natural disasters that you've dealt with. What's your most poignant memory? You know, we always ask the families that we help, and we've helped, we don't just help firefighters, we've helped veterans, just regular families, single parents, you know, people with medical issues, senior citizens. And I always, you know, kind of ask if they're willing to share kind of, you know, what they lost that meant the most to them in the fire. And what I've learned in that is, you know, almost everything is replaceable. The thing that people routinely tell me are pictures of their grandparents, you know, Christmas ornaments or holiday ornaments their kids made when they were younger, just things that you can't replace is what people kind of miss the most. The rest is just, it's all replaceable, you know, and, and I just makes me realize in my own life, you know, my problems are really not problems. You know, we're, we're just blessed with the lives we live. I'm, my home is, is standing and we're just really grateful for, it'll really change your perspective when you, when you work with people who've lost everything in an instant like this. Have you ever been to Maui? I have and Lahaina and it's just, it's just a magical place. I mean, it is literally paradise. And just to see it suffer like it has, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I mean, that community will never be the same. It'll take years and years to, to recover. And, but, you know, I, I think one of the, the positives, if there are any in all of this is, you, you know, when you're doing nice things, you meet the nicest people and, you know, people really rally to help. And I think fundamentally people are good. And this is, this brings out the best in a lot of really tragic circumstances. You can't travel to San Diego with RVs every week for the next unknown period of time while they're needed. How do you continue this effort? You know, just you're you're actually helping us do that by helping get the word out. You know, when people, again, I, I really passionately believe that, that people in situations like this, they want to help. They just don't know how. When they hear about an opportunity like this, they're like, hey, we've got an RV that we're paying $300 a month to store. Why, why are we doing that? Why don't we donate it? And we can get it to a family or a first responder who really could use a break right now. And so um, we just people want to help. And we've got plenty of volunteers out there to help us move RVs. You know, I, a lot of people who own big trucks love to pull things. So <laughs> we've learned that as well. And so they're just they're good people everywhere. And again, when you're doing when you're doing nice things, you meet the nicest people. And that's just one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this. How if somebody wants to help? Can they contribute to this or, you know, if I have an RV, what do I do? You can go to our, our website. It's www.emergencyrv.org. There's an RV donation form that you just fill out your information. There's no obligation, but we'll contact you and tell you what the next steps are. We also have places where we can donate money. That's always really important because one of the things we try to do is we try to stock the RVs with everything somebody needs, because when you lose everything, you need everything. I mean, everything, just think about everything you touch in a day in your own life. So, you know, financial resources are, are super helpful as well. And then we have a volunteer intake form. You know, we have this group of, of really sweet ladies in Iowa who, who make quilts for us. And so we put quilts in every RV that we donate. Uh, that, that kind of touches me because you know, you lose so many things that are meaningful to you. And then you have something like a, 
a quilt made with love from someone in Iowa. It's just, it's a really, you know, good way to start over. What do you thank you? Thank you so much for your help and getting the word out for us. Woody Faircloth of Denver, speaking with my colleague, Michelle Fulcher. Faircloth leads EmergencyRV.org. The group is sending five recreational vehicles to Maui for first responders who've lost their homes in the fires that have devastated the island. Faircloth was named a CNN hero in 2019 for his work on the Paradise Fire in California. When we come back, the mythic past and imperiled future of bears. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Subscribe to The Lookout from CPR News to get the big news and get more connected to Colorado. The Lookout newsletter is delivered to your inbox with the big stories from across Colorado every morning. Subscribe to The Lookout now at CPR.org. When Gloria Dickey started her master's program in environmental journalism at CU Boulder in 2013, it coincided with an uptick in problems with bears. As Boulderites were moving into the wildland urban interface, the city was seeing more black bears rummaging through people's trash. That issue became the focus of her master's thesis, and it ultimately evolved into her taking a worldwide trek, profiling each of the species of bears still alive on Earth. Her new book out recounts her travels. It's called Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. She spoke with CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. I'm going to see how well I remember the bears, and I'm going to list them with my eyes closed. Okay. Spectacled bear, sloth bear, panda bear, moon bear, sun bear, black bear, brown bear, polar bear. Yeah, that was nice. You did it. Thank you. Congratulations. I mean, I feel like you, you did. You you did kind of have a cheat sheet for my book, but uh, I, it, I, if I if I if I'd asked you that before you read the book, how many could you have made? Well, that's so funny because when I first heard the concept and the title, profiling the eight remaining bear species, I couldn't tell if I thought that that sounded like a lot of bears, or like a vanishingly small number of bears. However, I absolutely could not have named all eight bears. I mean, maybe I could have named four bears. What are you finding, though, when you're speaking to folks at engagements around the book, what their reflections are on that number? It's so funny because the reaction that you just described is everyone's reaction. They cannot decide. You know, at first they typically think, oh, there are only eight bear species left. Like, oh, that's so sad. I'm like, well, how many can you name? And they can only name four of them. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know why they, they're surprised. <laughs> like eight should seem like there's a lot to them then if they can only name four. Because yeah. of their charisma. And like you mentioned, we have this long history of myth and kind of the anthropomorphized bears of legend that there are these clear candidates for deeply motivated protection efforts. And what I saw is so interesting on that front is the different fates between in particular the panda bear and the polar bear. They're both so beloved, and yet the next hundred years look so different for those two particular species, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess with the polar bear, so much of it comes down to not being able to set aside a, a few thousand kilometers for them to be able to live. You have to stop climate change. And at least with the panda bear, they can create gi- giant panda national park, which is what they're doing now. They can, you know, truck in bamboo and 
you know, it'd be interesting to see the financial breakdown of how much money has been spent on panda conservation versus polar bears. I don't know those numbers, you know, but of course the polar bear has been the poster child for a lot of environmental campaigns for a long time as well. But I think it's just the task is so much more monumental to try and save polar bears. It's it's two very different challenges, I think. Sure. And with the panda bear, of course, what you have is you have basically the entire apparatus of the Chinese government hell-bent on making sure that panda bears thrive to the degree that they're able to, while other bears in China are ignored or worse, uh, farmed for uh, the bile in their gallbladder. It's just such a different story for panda bears since they, they're just so dang cute. But I'm like, aren't sun bears? I mean, you've seen a sun bear. I think they're pretty cute too. It's just totally arbitrary to me, at least. Like, I mean, I think moon bears are really cute. I think sun bears are really cute too. Pandas are also very cute. It's like this weird decision that at some point was made in history that we're going to treat this one bear this way and these other bears this completely different way. And these two things exist in this culture side by side, and they could not be more different. And I think, too, you know, the strength of the pandas, like China has a monopoly on pandas. So they they want to like protect that. Right. Someone was asking me like, oh, you know, you have tigers, but tigers exist a lot of, across a lot of different countries. And not one single country can claim all of that animal, whereas China's in this very unique position that it can say we own all of the world's pandas. So with great power comes great responsibility, I guess, in terms of of conservation. And what you have with moon bears and then to a a smaller degree, the sun bear, is this industry that has cropped up around harvesting the bile from these bears' gallbladders. And it is different than a lot of this sort of illegal trade in so many other animals we think like rhino horn or something like that where there isn't an authentic medicinal quality, but that is not the case with bile. It actually mm-hmm. is this, has these useful properties. Just talk about that because it was so interesting. Bear bile dates back to traditional Chinese medicine, as as you may know. The kind of active ingredient, if you will, is ursodeoxycholic acid, which we also have ursodeoxycholic acid in our bile as well, despite the Latin root urso, which, you know, bear, but we don't make as much of it. So bears create a lot of this, this kind of potent liquid. The properties of this acid stave off cell death when the bears hibernate. If you or I were to sleep for six months and not move, our bodies would completely deteriorate, but the bears don't. So scientists have been studying it to look at what's this magical quality is is protecting these animals. And they found that perhaps it shows promise when addressing like neurodegenerative diseases. So things like Parkinson's, Huntington's, Lou Gehrig's diseases, there's, there's been trials looking at that. And it does seem to show some impact on that. Now, the flip side to that is that people in Vietnam and China, they're not like trying to treat their Parkinson's disease with bear bile. They're trying to treat a sore back or a cold or a hangover with bear bile, right? So they're not they're not looking at it for that perhaps deeper meaning, but it, it does kind of give weight to, you know, maybe at some point in history, it did show a difference, right? And that's why it's persisted for so long. Yet with this kind of back alley bear bile industry, it really exploded so recently comparatively. It really started really taking off in the 90s and early 2000s. And I just found that startling to read about in quote unquote the modern world did you find that surprising so before this when when we're stating back to traditional medicine they weren't farming the bears they were going into the wild and they were killing the bear and they were taking its gallbladder and hole out of the bear but this was creating an issue with conservation at the time because people were going in killing bears in the wild and so 
the Chinese government and the North Koreans were like, hey, maybe we could figure out how to do this. Keeping the bears alive on a farm, you get more bile because it replenishes. So instead of killing the animals, we can just farm them. They developed these techniques to basically extract various different methods, but using a catheter to take the bile out. And that was kind of perfected by the 1990s. You started to see governments encouraging this kind of production. And that's kind of when we saw that boom take off. However, they were still taking bears from the wild to stock the farms. So it didn't really address the conservation concerns. It's a pretty brutal practice. The farming of this bear bile in Vietnam, it's um, maybe the most disturbing section of the book. And I imagine of your reporting as well. Yeah, it was. I, I had first heard about this. I think I was uh, 10 years old and I'd seen a little documentary on Animal Planet when I was a kid about one of the NGOs that worked on these bears. And I remember being like totally horrified and fixated by that and like remembered it for obviously many years after. And, you know, one of the, the things that I did do when I was reporting the book was go to one of those sanctuaries that I'd seen on that television program so many years ago and see where the bears lived. When they're on the farms, you know, they're kept in cages where they can barely turn around. They can't move. In China, it's much worse. I didn't report on bear bile in China because it's quite difficult to do any reporting there, much less trying to get into these larger farms. Um, but I think the other thing that makes it so hard too is that bears live for a long time. So they're not just on there for like one to two years. They might be kept in these sort of horrifying conditions for up to you know a decade before they succumb to kind of this, this weekly torture and you know malnourishment and problems caused by not being able to move in their cages. Climate change is just this primary backbone through which you profile the bears. And it has resulted in so many changes in bear behavior as the habitat of brown bears is moving upward into the Arctic as you have warming. You have brown bears and polar bears interbreeding and creating the phenomenally named Pisley bear. And then of interest to us in Colorado have been the hibernation habits of the American black bear. And just how much have the changes in hibernation patterns affected how we interact with the black bear? One of the moments that I describe in the book was, you know, speaking to this wildlife manager and he kind of made this off the cuff statement to me about, oh yeah, you know, in some cases, like they're not really hibernating anymore. <laughs> to me, like bears and hibernation are so like it's hand in hand, right? Like bears are hibernation and hibernation, you think bears. Um, so to hear that they're that, you know, this very core identifying habit is changing was very surprising to me through a combination of warming temperatures throughout the winter time, less snow falling in some cases, as well as especially in places like Colorado, having more food available from humans throughout the year, we are seeing that bears are staying up for longer. Bears, you know, go into hibernation when there's not much food available and when it's cold and so they kind of bunker down. But if you keep the food flowing, there's not really a reason for them to go and do that. And they'll just stay up and keep eating. You know, it's like the midnight fridge visit. And so we are starting to see changes in places like Colorado and places like Lake Tahoe, where there's kind of that close interface between people and vacation homes and bears and warming temperatures that they're no longer hibernating as much as they used to. It's more dangerous for the bears ultimately because there, it leads to more bear-human interactions the longer they are not hibernating and therefore more problem bears which need to be put down. When I'd first thought about this question, I'd been thinking, oh, it must have some sort of health impact on the bear. To, you know, it needs to be hibernating. It's going to deteriorate. You know, something will go wrong if it doesn't hibernate. But a lot of bears don't hibernate. You know, if they live down near the equator where there's even day length, the other bear species do not all hibernate. No, there's no real like health impact in that sense. But 
as one bear biologist put it to me, the longer the bear stays up, the more opportunities it has to die. They can get hit by cars. They can be getting killed by wildlife managers for getting into food. So it creates, you know, just additional time for them to kind of get into trouble. So the last Colorado grizzly bears were wiped out in the 1950s. And so the state recently has seen the voter-supported but controversial reintroduction of wolves into the state. And there are some who advocate for grizzlies to be next. Do you think that that is an effort that could succeed, I guess, both politically and then practically? I think it's a really interesting question. And as a former Colorado resident, one that I've thought about quite a bit, going up to Rocky Mountain National Park, and all of a sudden, you're not just thinking about mountain lions and black bears, but you're thinking about grizzly bears as well. I mean, I, I I would be kind of curious and excited to see it. I think I would be a little bit more scared to go hiking as well. <laughs> but, you know, again, politically, it took so much to get wolves back. I think the grizzly bears would be an even bigger task. The complication with the politics is Colorado, say, with wolves is a good example as well, where what you have is predominantly liberal urban metropolitan centers uh, voting in efforts like this, but it's not those communities who have to deal with the after effects and the downsides of such reintroduction. And you found that really uh, strikingly in the book with the expansion of the grizzly bear population, specifically moving on to uh, out of the mountains more toward the eastern plains of Montana. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very common line of criticism for any animal being returned to an area that's capable of killing people or livestock is the liberal city folk want these animals, but they're not dealing with the repercussions of living with them or they don't have to leave your house in the morning and see, oh, no, is there a grizzly bear in my yard? And, I, you know, I think that it plays out, too, in an interesting way, because when you do have proposals to put these bears in places where the more liberal, not quite city folk, but, you know, mountain town folk are living, they also are afraid to, right? Like everyone's kind of afraid to live with these animals. And yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair point. I, I do think that there's been a lot of efforts done, whether it's fencing or range rider, you know, there, there's different government initiatives to try and create tolerance, you know, trying to buy up buffer landscapes, um, you know, easements to create more space. But I think either way, people are going to have to live with these animals. And so, we have to figure out a way somehow to make space for them and improve tolerance, especially if our goal is to see populations reconnect, creating consistent population between Glacier and Yellowstone, which is kind of the, the forefront case right now. In the story, you express some surprise that a grizzly bear advocate that you uh, are introduced to is also a hunter. At one point, you describe trophy hunting as maybe an anachronism rooted in the colonial school of thought that wilderness should be conquered and sanitized to satisfy human ego. I imagine that many in the hunting community would bristle at that. Hunting and fishing license sales, they provide the largest source of funding for conservation efforts in the West, and the sportsman community are often at the forefront of protecting both habitats and populations of the animals they hunt. Colorado has a black bear hunting season, for instance. Could the same not be true for grizzlies in these other Western states where you could have a small-scale hunt, even if it was unabashedly a trophy hunt? And could that not lead to more respect, more protection, and more conservation for grizzlies over time? Yeah, I think the, the trophy hunting question <laughs> in terms of conservation is one that's, I think, 
never really fully been answered in many ways in terms of looking at, you know, what's happened in Africa as well. There's been a lot of takedowns in recent years about kind of using trophy hunting as a means to promote conservation in the long run. I think in the case of the, the Yellowstone grizzly bear, the reason that that has been so contentious is because there's so much dispute over how many bears are there and like a lack of having a safety plan in place if numbers slip beyond a certain threshold again. The numbers are uncertain. There's a lot, a lot of legislation going against bears in the courts in Montana, going against wolves as well. So I think if it's done respectfully, that's one thing. But you know, good, it's not necessarily done in good faith, I think. And I think that's what a lot of people had issue with when the when the hunt was proposed. It's like revenge against the liberals, right? It's like it's this highly politicized activity in this case, I feel. So much of particularly hunting seasons for predators still very often gets caught up in red blue politics red blue politics like <laughs> yeah, anything yeah. else but I, I i just want to point out too that i i did interview a trophy hunter and i think too part of you know my perhaps initial impression was like i don't meet many trophy hunters in my daily life and they don't want to talk to the media that much and i think that that makes sense because trophy hunters are typically lambasted quite a bit once they speak publicly in terms of online pileups but the hunter that I did speak to in the book, he was very level-headed and he had a great respect for bears and wildlife. And you could tell that he like really loved wilderness. So, I mean, he also liked trophy hunting, but it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't get that same feeling from him that this was like this highly politicized activity and that he was doing it in a spiteful way. It was someone who like really loved nature and loved being outside and I guess wanted to take a part of that with them in a different kind of way. I think the part of the book that I found the most informational, it opened my eyes onto a world that I had absolutely no idea existed at all is with the sloth bear. I chose my favorite passage of the whole book from this chapter, and I wonder if I can have you read it aloud for us. In North America, bear attacks are akin to being struck by lightning. Their stories told around campfires to ward off sleep. But in India, the sloth bear isn't an abstract beast stalking nightmares. Fear of such attacks is a lived reality for millions of people living in rural areas. It was a luxury, I realized, to conceive of these animals as fable protagonists, majestic arbiters of wilderness, and cuddly cartoon characters. In many parts of India, the sloth bear is a force of devastation. Yeah, why don't you just talk about that internal path coming to grips with that? Just to preface, so the sloth bear is the world's deadliest bear. It attacks and, you know, and kills. It's not tracked closely, but attacks hundreds per year, you know, kills probably a few dozen across India. And I kind of had, you know, I, I traveled to India for a few months and I was trying to interview the people who lived alongside bears, interviewing scientists. And I felt there was a moment where I started to feel a little bit guilty about perhaps my giddiness to see bears and my kind of affection for bears. And I was interviewing these very, very poor people in these villages, you know, and they were living on almost nothing and they kind of show their very mangled arm and they hadn't been able to get back to the hospital, you know, to get the pins removed from their arm or they'd had severe scarring. They'd been traumatized by these bears. And, you know, there was kind of an awkwardness, I think, at first about me kind of being excited about seeing bears and, you know, wanting to figure out how to conserve them. But for these people, it was like something that had ruined their lives. And, they couldn't work for months at a time. So they were very angry and they were very upset still. And it was, you know, it was, I was thankful with them for sharing their stories with me, but it was definitely a different conception of bears that I had entered with. After your work reporting on the eight surviving bear species, do you feel more optimistic for the future of bears or less so? 
Well, I'm an environmental journalist, so I think I'm always a cynic. <laughs> I felt uh, maybe more balanced. I had a better idea of like which species I thought could do well and which might struggle more. I felt very optimistic about pandas. And people kind of surprise when I say that because they're like, well, you know, it's you know, there's the fewest of them. There's fewer than 2,000 wild pandas. But when, once I saw how much money China, like how much China was putting into this, I'm like, no, they're fine. They're not, not going to go extinct. And, and at the same time, too, you know, if we're looking at sun bears, which are threatened by um, palm oil plantations, we are seeing, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia make progress on deforestation, which is a rare glimmer of hope in that world. So there's some things happening there. We're seeing, you know, action being taken against bear bile farming now. So I guess I probably feel about the same, which is, you know, cynic, but like a little bit of optimism. I mean, I hope that we can turn things around. Obviously, you know, bears are certainly not the only species threatened by climate change and habitat loss. A million species are currently threatened with extinction, according to the UN. People are going to care about animals going extinct. I think they'll care about bears as one of the first ones. So maybe it's a way to get into this and, and also think about some of the less charismatic animals that are also facing a lot of threats and don't have someone who wrote a book about them. <laughs> Eight bears, mythic past and imperiled future. Gloria Dickey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me and thank you for reading the book. Gloria Dickey spoke with CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. Eating a lot of vegetables is good for your health. But what about growing them alongside other gardeners? CPR health reporter John Daly digs into a new first-of-its-kind Colorado study on the impact of community gardening. Horse Barn Community Garden is located in Five Points and Curtis Park near downtown Denver. This is where you'll often find Charlotte Griffin watering the vegetables. Onion and garlic and chives are coming up now. Griffin is 67. She lives three blocks away. Since she retired as a truck driver and at times stressful occupation, she's found an enriching respite here. What are the health benefits for you of gardening? Keeps my peace of mind together. How you're doing when you garden is the focus of the work of a visitor here, Jill Litt, a CU environmental studies professor. Her research explores the way we build communities and how that affects health and well-being, in particular. How green space can have an impact on health and how we can leverage it for public health promotion and disease prevention. Great idea. Most people can get on board with the concept that gardening has social benefits. Trouble is, in the past, the research has been a bit squishy, observational, hard to quantify. And it left this fundamental question still a bit unanswered. Is it the garden or is it that people already have these habits and they bring them to the garden, but they would show health benefits no matter where they were at? Litt's idea, study community gardening by... Actually do a randomized controlled trial. Perhaps the first ever controlled trial of community gardeners. She and her team randomly put people in two groups. One... That would receive a garden plot and the other that would be in a control environment. So that means they didn't garden. And Lit enlisted new gardeners. So we were able to look at whether you could learn to garden and be successful at it and have health benefits. They recruited nearly 300 adults, most from low-income Denver households, 
who were new to gardening. They assigned half to a community garden in the spring. By fall, the gardeners ate 7% more fiber a day. They got 42 more minutes of physical activity a week. Two ways known to reduce the risk of cancer and chronic diseases. Litt says this provides... The evidence to show that green spaces in cities can be part of our health story. What does that mean? For one thing, Litt says it could give clinicians or care professionals options to recommend to their patients. This could become part of something that we're calling nature-based social prescribing. So the garden becomes a bridge to allow people to participate in things that are good for their health. That concept appeals to John Andouri, a gardener from Denver. He's survived bouts with cancer three times, most recently... Colon cancer, they're saying, you know, exercise and what you eat really matters. So that was a real wake-up call. Andouri, who is 70 was not part of the study. He says he'd never gardened before his diagnosis, then discovered a garden at a nearby school. So I've had a plot there now going into my sixth year, and it's fun meeting other gardeners. I, you know, it's a community. I've met people from Syria, Korea, from Mexico. Now the former minister, journalist, and educator can tell you all about broccoli and cabbage as cancer fighters. It's not just eating balanced diet, but it's actually, I think, food is medicine. Participants did report that their stress and anxiety levels fell. Oh, look at your rain barrel! Yes, I just got it! <laughs> Charlotte Griffin, who was not part of the study, says besides growing a bounty of vegetables, she cultivates friendships. It's the community part in the community garden. I like to greet them. I like to go to them, you know. What's been going on with you? How you doing? What you planting? Researcher Jill Litt says community gardening is one part of a growing international movement to promote the health benefits of nature-based solutions. Litt says she's seen partnerships spring up and the medical system, practices, and clinics in Colorado and beyond. Embracing this idea and desperately seeking the evidence to support decisions to go in this direction. Now, Litt says she's excited that she has the data to back it up. I'm John Daly, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us and to the entire Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.